Blog Talk Radio. Section 9 of The Underground Railroad, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Underground Railroad, Part 1, by William Still. Section 9, Death of Romulus Hall, new name George Weems. In March 1857, Abram Harris fled from John Henry Southern, who lived near Benedict, Charles County, Maryland, where he was engaged in the farming business and was the owner of about 70 head of slaves. He kept an overseer and usually had flogging administered daily on males and females, old and young. Abram became very sick of this treatment, resolved, about the 1st of March, to seek out the Underground Railroad, but for his strong attachment to his wife, who was owned by Samuel Adams and was pretty well treated, he never would have consented to suffer as he did. Here, no hope of comfort for the future seemed to remain, so Abram consulted with a fellow servant by the name of Romulus Hall, Elias George Weems, and, being very warm friends, concluded to start together. Both had wives to tear themselves from, and each was equally ignorant of the distance they had to travel and the dangers and sufferings to be endured. But they trusted in God and kept the North Star in view. For nine days and nights, without a guide, they traveled at a very exhausting rate, especially as they had to go fasting for three days and to endure very cold weather. Abram's companion, being about fifty years of age, felt obliged to succumb both from hunger and cold and had to be left on the way. Abram was a man of medium size, tall, dark chestnut color, and could read and write a little and was quite intelligent, was a member of the Mount Zion Church, and occasionally officiated as an exhorter, and really appeared to be a man of genuine faith in the Almighty, and equally as much in freedom. In substance, Abram gave the following information concerning his knowledge of affairs on the farm under his master. Master and mistress very frequently visited the Protestant church, but were not members. Mistress was very bad. About three weeks before I left, the overseer, in a violent fit of bad temper, shot and badly wounded a young slave man by the name of Henry Waters, but no sooner than he got well enough he escaped, and had not been heard of up to the time Abram left. About three years before this happened, an overseer of my master was found shot dead on the road. At once some of the slaves were suspected, and were all taken to the courthouse at Sarentown, St. Mary's County, but all came off clear. After this occurrence, a new overseer by the name of John Deckett was employed. Although his predecessor had been dead three years, Deckett nevertheless concluded that it was not too late to flog the secret out of some of the slaves. Accordingly, he selected a young man for his victim, and flogged him so cruelly that he could scarcely walk or stand, and to keep him from being actually killed, the boy told an untruth, and confessed that he and his uncle Henry had killed Webster, the overseer, whereupon the poor fellow was sent to jail to be tried for his life. But Abram did not wait to hear the verdict. He reached the committee safely in this city, in advance of his companion, and was furnished with a free ticket and other needed assistance. He was sent on his way rejoicing. After reaching his destination, he wrote back to know how his friend and companion, George, was getting along. But in less than three weeks after he had passed, the following brief story reveals the sad fate of poor Romulus Hall, 
who had journeyed with him till exhausted from hunger and badly frostbitten. A few days after his younger companion had passed on north, Romulus was brought by a pitying stranger to the vigilance committee in a most shocking condition. The frost had made sad havoc with his feet and legs, so much so that all sense of feeling had departed therefrom. How he ever reached this city is a marvel. On his arrival, medical attention and other necessary comforts were provided by the committee, who hoped with himself that he would be restored with the loss of his toes alone. For one week he seemed to be improving. At the expiration of this time, however, his symptoms changed, indicating not only the end of slavery, but also the end of all his earthly troubles. Lockjaw and mortification set in in the most malignant form, and for nearly thirty-six hours the unfortunate victim suffered in extreme agony, though not a murmur escaped him for having brought upon himself in seeking his liberty this painful infliction and death. It was wonderful to see how resignedly he endured his fate. Being anxious to get his testimony relative to his escape, etc., the chairman of the committee took his pencil and expressed to him his wishes in the matter. Amongst other questions, he was asked, Do you regret having attempted to escape from slavery? After a severe spasm, he said, as his friend was about to turn to leave the room, hopeless of being gratified in his purpose, Don't go. I have not answered your question. I am glad I escaped from slavery. He then gave his name and tried to tell the name of his master, but was so weak he could not be understood. At his bedside day and night, slavery looked more heinous than it had ever done before. Only think how this poor man in an enlightened Christian land, for the bare hope of freedom, in a strange land among strangers, was obliged not only to bear the sacrifice of his wife and kindred, but also of his own life. Nothing ever appeared more sad than seeing him in a dying posture, and instead of reaching his much-coveted destination in Canada, going to that born whence no traveler returns, of course it was expedient, even after his death, that only a few friends should follow him to his grave. Nevertheless, he was decently buried in the beautiful Lebanon cemetery. In his purse was found one single five-cent piece, his whole pecuniary dependence. This was the first instance of death on the Underground Railroad in this region. The committee was indebted to the medical services of the well-known friends of the fugitive, Drs. J. L. Griscom and H. T. Childs, whose faithful services were freely given, and likewise to Mrs. H. S. Duterte and Mrs. Williams, who generously performed the offices of charity and friendship at his burial. From his companion, who passed on Canada word without delay, he received a letter, from which, as an item of interest, we make the following extract. I am enjoying good health, and hope, when this reaches you, you may be enjoying the same blessings. Give my love to Mr. Blank and family, and tell them I am in a land of liberty. I am a man among men. The above was addressed to the deceased. The subjoined letter, from Rev. L. D. Mansfield, expressed on behalf of Romulus's companion, his sad feelings on hearing of his friend's death. And here it may not be inappropriate to add that clearly enough it is to be seen that Reverend Mansfield was one of the rare orders of ministers who believed it right to do unto others as one would be done by. 
in practice, not in theory merely, and who felt that they could no more be excused for falling down in obedience to the fugitive slave law under President Fillmore than could Daniel for worshipping the golden image under Nebuchadnezzar. Auburn, New York, May 4, 1857 Dear B.R. Still, Henry Lehman wishes me to write to you in reply to your kind letter, conveying the intelligence of the death of your fugitive guest, George Weems. He was deeply affected at the intelligence, for he was most devotedly attached to him, and had been for many years. Mr. Lehman now expects his sister to come on, and wishes you to aid her in any way in your power, as he knows you will. He wishes you to send the coat and cap of Weems by his sister when she comes, and when you write out the history of Weems' escape, and it is published, that you would send him a copy of the papers. He has not been very successful in getting work yet. Mr. and Mrs. Harris left for Canada last week. The friends made them a purse of 15 or $20, and we hope they will do well. Mr. Lehman sends his respects to you and Mrs. Still. Give my kind regards to her, and accept also yourself. Yours very truly, L. D. Mansfield. End of section 9. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. You've been listening to a reading from the William Spills book, The Underground Railroad, uh, by way of the Gist of Freedom, where in uh, tonight's discussion it was a feature on Romulus Hall, who later changed his name to George Weems. And I didn't pick up on why Mr. Hall changed his name or how that came about changing his name to George Weems. Escape from slavery via the Underground Railroad after being entirely frustrated with his treatment on the plantation by the owner and by the overseer. Apparently endured uh, a number of floggings and eventually got to the place where he figured he had experienced his last body and made his way to Philadelphia via the Underground Railroad. And apparently arrived there in uh, dismal shape, uh, frostbitten, uh, very poor condition, uh, toes amputated. Um, He was in very bad shape. Uh, Luckily, the Vigilance Committee had some very uh, distinguished doctors on hand who were able to restore him to some semblance. And uh, among those doctors, by the way, was William Steele's brother, uh, was a doctor as well. So they were pretty well fortified and able to attend to his needs. Uh, Dr. James Steele, the brother of uh, William Steele. And Mr. Steele also wrote a book on his recollections. Or I should say William wrote a book on his recollections, recollections of James Steele, uh, his doctor brother. 
no doubt helped out in the uh with well being the well taking care of uh, Romulus. And uh, should be noted that James Steele did write his own book. Uh, it was very common in those days for uh, those individuals uh, that were the abolitionists that were part of the Underground Railroad uh, to write books, as it was with the mutual aid societies that were uh, assisting fugitives during that period, during the period of uh, the abolitionist movement, uh, which really took off in the mid-1850s thanks to the Fugitive Slave Law. And, uh, a number of folks had to be called on mutual aid societies, uh, particularly in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, uh, Maryland, other areas in the north. And... Uh, Speaking of those mutual aid societies, and by the way, uh, that was a very good description, a, a very heartfelt description of the death of uh, Romulus Hall, a.k.a. Uh, George. Wings. The mutual aid societies um, were formulated in Philadelphia. And they were established uh, long about uh, 1778. Uh, one such was the Pre African Society which is a mutual aid society, had a balance of 42,000 pounds on deposit at the Bank of North America. They received quite a bit of funds from overseas, mainly from England. Uh, they had major contributors here in the United States as well. Um, that first one, as I mentioned, was formed in 1778, and by 1838, the number had grown to about a hundred benevolent organizations, and the overall membership was in excess of seven thousand. It was Richard Avalon and Absalon Jones who formed the Free African Society in Philadelphia, and it was designed to provide socioeconomic guidance to newly freed people, uh, teaching thrift, saving to build wealth in the community. And these mutual aid societies served as a model for banks, which were later formed in the um, formed in black communities. Uh, there is a movie or documentary, if our listeners are interested, that chronicles the black history in relation to these societies. The name of that special is The Contradictions of Fair Hope. The Contradictions of Fair Hope. Now, I want to move on to uh, 
some current events. I guess you have been keeping up with the Paula Dean uh, scandal and her remarks and and the view that some have taken that she was running a modern-day plantation. Uh, her employees were not allowed to use the front door. They had to come in through the rear. Uh, there was only one bathroom for black employees to use. Um, there's a number of things coming out about Ms. Paula Dean uh, planning a wedding, um, a wedding thing, uh, and the thing would be a plantation with pinkaninnies and an uncle Tom and uh, the waiters who were to be all black would be dressed in black. Uh, some would say <laughs> looking like Clarence Thomas uh, a mask or whatever. But quite a number of uh, issues coming out uh, about Miss Dean. And uh, and her remarks that it was not just 20 years ago, it's just very recent. Talking about uh, Mr. Thomas, Mr. Clarence Thomas, you're also probably aware of his uh, vote and the recent uh, dismantling of the voters' rights legislation or the Voters' Rights Act that was passed back in 19. Uh, 65 or so, and his role in helping gut that act, which has disappointed quite a number uh, quite a number of individuals, uh, civil rights leaders, uh, prominent amongst was. Uh, John Lewis, who was uh, extremely um, disappointed that um, Jim Crow is very much alive, has not died at all. I guess the uh, rumors of Jim Crow's death have been greatly exaggerated. Uh, it's very alive and well. here in the U.S. of A. Um, we're going to move on. Um, thinking of uh, the um, five judges uh, who are making up the conservative wing of the Supreme Court who were instrumental in, again, gutting uh, the Voters' Voting Rights Act, 1965. And it should bring to everyone's attention that we still have a long way to go uh, in this country and uh, getting the rights of minorities, particularly black folk, uh, situated to where we don't have to go through uh, sit-ins and marches and that sort of thing. The um, 
current events, uh, Trayvon Martin testimony, his friend Rachel. I've been noticing, and I have not watched the uh, proceedings, but I have been keeping up on Facebook that a number of individuals were disappointed that uh, in her testimony and her language and the fact that she could not read a letter that she allegedly wrote. Well, I believe the young lady is uh, Haitian, or at least from West India, or the West Indies, and um, she speaks three languages, which is no guarantee that she can write in those three languages that she speaks. And so I deduce that there might be uh, a barrier, her inability to read a language, and I also understand uh, that the letter that she allegedly wrote was dictated to someone to write for her. And again, because she can speak three languages, doesn't necessarily mean that she can write or read in three languages. So I think that perhaps she could be forgiven. Uh, and it seems that the defense is getting what they want in that the emphasis has now been shift to Rachel and not concentrating so much on the accused killer, the man who's on trial for killing Trayvon Martin. And I guess his family and friends have been posting around Facebook about their triumph over ignorance. Uh, here again, focusing in on this young lady by the name of Rachel want our listeners to also know that you can keep up with the history and the current events on Leslie Gist, that's G-I-S-T, Facebook page. You can also listen to these shows. They're archived at www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. Again, that's www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. Um, moving back to Mr. Zimmerman uh, we would think that he would be found guilty because he was carrying a concealed weapon his intention was to use it and eventually to kill and to provocate to instigate to be out front. Uh, that is, he agitated uh, Trayvon so that he could use his gun. He kept it here. Uh, a true vigilante, which I understand he may not have been part of the vigilante uh, committee, would have had his weapon displayed and carrying it out in the open. And I'm sure it would have been in some sort of uniform, some sort of regalia that identified him as being part of the uh, vigilante committee. But it seems to be shaping up that he is a cold-blooded killer that was on the prowl and uh, looking deliberately to take somebody out. And it's unfortunate that Trayvon Martin 
was where he was when he was and became the target of Mr. Zimmerman. You should want to comment or come up with uh, attention on other current events. You can reach us at 347-324-5552. I'm just wondering now how many other communities have vigilante committees or how many communities, in view of the Trayvon Martin case, have established religion or vigilante committees? Anyone's out there with that information, you might give us a call and share that. Interested in the the influx that has it, vigilante committees uh, in your community uh, taken off? Uh, have you had uh, several tips it's acts of violence against people of color in your community? Uh, think back to uh, the Getz situation. Mr. Getz there in New York City, Brooklyn maybe, who was on a subway and uh, indiscriminately started shooting people of color uh, and who was treated as somewhat of a hero. I wonder what uh, knowledge Mr. Zimmerman might have had of Mr. Getz and that fiasco that went down in New York City a while back. So what we see with Mr. Zinnemann, at least at a national basis, uh, wasn't the first act of indiscriminate shooting. So hasn't really been a good week for people of color, particularly black folk. And uh, we're going to bring the show to an end. And uh, I want you to pray for the families, Trayvon Martin's families, and any family out there that's experiencing uh, violence in their lives, not only for our family but for our people. Send up a prayer and meditation for those individuals. And again, you've been listening to The Gift of Freedom. I've been your host. My name is Preston Washington. And join us again Thursday, this coming Thursday, for another program, The Gift of Freedom. Good night, everyone. Thank you for joining us.